All right, Westside, we'll be in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Again, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback Bible right there in the pew back in front of you. If you don't own one, take that. That's our gift to you this morning. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Please follow along and have your eyes on Scripture. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. We're glad that you're here. And as you can tell from the text, um, it's a pretty fun passage of scripture that we got today. Uh, Jesus shows up to church, preaches a sermon, and uh, everybody wants to kill him. Pretty interesting, right? So what we're doing is we're in the season of Epiphany, and what we're learning is the big idea is that God is like Jesus. And it's a pretty profound theological truth when we understand that. That, that we don't have to guess what God is like. And, and what we've learned is, is that a lot of us have some preconceived notions of that. And so we have to sort of deconstruct those and reconstruct those with the proper image that Jesus has given us. And last week we celebrated baptisms, and it was incredible to study Jesus' baptism and the temptation as well. And what we learned of the good news of Epiphany in the passage last week was everything that was said over Jesus... We had this beautiful moment where the heavens were ripped open. God the Father speaks to the Son. We have God the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And these words were spoken. This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we said that the good news of the gospel is, is that because of Jesus Christ, God says that to us. And it's pretty profound for us to understand. Many of us have maybe even never heard the phrase, I'm pleased with you. And now we can know that the creator of the cosmos says that because of Jesus Christ. 
And then we get into now, as we're looking at more people in the scriptures who are um, understanding who Jesus is, right? So we said that Epiphany is sort of like an aha moment, if you will. And we've, we've seen that through um, baptism, that God the Father declares who Jesus is, that even through the temptation that Satan himself knows who Jesus is. Then we get to Jesus' hometown, right? It says where he had uh, grown up. And maybe this will help us and just set us up as an illustration. I'm a big fan of Billy Graham, the late, great Billy Graham. And there's a story told in the book, The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham. Um, at the height of Billy's um, notoriety and fame, I mean, this guy's preaching in stadiums. And he was in a city and had just um, preached in a stadium. And, of course, it was televised and it was a big deal. And him and his team go back to the hotel that they're staying at. And as they get onto the elevator, one of the employees there at the hotel gets on the elevator. And the employee is very chatty, asking them how they are, and then mentions, did you guys get to see Dr. Graham speak tonight? And were you there at the arena? And um, one of the team members of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association just, you know, Billy didn't say anything, just kind of seeing what was going on. And one of the team members said, um, actually, Dr. Graham is, is here on the elevator. This is, this is Dr. Graham. And so the, the hotel employee turns around and looks, and there's a moment of pause and goes, that's not Billy Graham. <laughs> Billy Graham's a lot more handsome than that. <laughs> and it's just this great little moment that's carried on throughout history of this story. And that's a lot like the passage today. That, that right in front of them um, is, is the very Son of God, is the greatest revelation of who God is. Jesus is, God is like Jesus because Jesus is God and it's there in the hometown and they miss it. But who misses it? Because if you look in the context of the passage, just to set it up for us, we see that um, in verse 16, I love this little phrase, right? As was his custom, he went to the synagogue. You know, so just really quick, um, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, and so you know I'm about to preach about this verse, right? So the idea like, oh man, I love Jesus, but I'm not really down with the church, like, like Jesus would have a problem with that. Because what we see is that Jesus regularly gathered with God's people there in the synagogue and did his thing. And also notice, um, he, he grabs the scroll. So back then, you know, your, your Bible's a little bit different than the Old Testament of what Jesus would have had. So it would have been in scrolls. He would have opened it up. And we know through synagogue worship that there would have been a moment in the worship service where everything stopped and a passage of Scripture was read. Kind of familiar, right? Kind of familiar, right? A passage of scripture was read. And then in Jewish and rabbinical teaching, they, the teacher would have sat down and the people would have stood for the entire sermon. So today, we're going to, I'm just kidding, right? We want to be real biblical like the early church. Okay, right, all right. And so Jesus would have sat and he would have taught as the people would have stood. But, but something happens different um, in, in this sermon. Right? I mean, imagine this. Jesus reads a portion of scripture there in Isaiah, very, very intentional. This is the start of Jesus' ministry. Everything kicks off from this point. So this is like a summary of what his ministry is going to look like. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. And also, hey, by the way, um, what did Jesus think of the Old Testament scriptures? Did he think that they were authoritative? Did he teach from them? Yes. 
Yes, he did. We see this here in the passage. Then he sits down and they're ready for him to expound and to teach from the text. And he says, um, today, that scripture, it's been fulfilled. Let us pray, right? Like, and then it says all of the eyes were on him. I mean, this is a pretty incredible moment. But his sermon's not done. He then continues to engage because there's this little phrase, verse 22, and all spoke well of him. Man, Pastor Jesus, that was just an incredible sermon. That was great today. And he goes, well, well, well the sermon's not done, actually. And then he engages. And, and look at the difference, by the way. Verse 22, and they spoke well of him and marveled at him. And then look at verse 28. When they heard these things in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. Well, well, what happened? I thought it was a good sermon, right? Um, I, I love this passage because I think it shows um, sort of the fickleness of the crowd mentality, if you will. Um, and, and, and by the way, I, I believe something very, very early in my ministry that I realize is, is not healthy now. When people would come up to me early in my ministry or they would come here to Westside and go, oh, man, that's, oh, this church, oh, it's so much better than that other church. Oh, it's so much different than, and what I like about, and now what I realize, what I do now is just kind of like look at my watch. Because it's only a moment of time before you're going to be saying that about me. Because what we see in this passage is the people, listen, don't miss this. The people that miss who Jesus is are people who regularly attend church, carry their Bible to church, and those are the ones who try to kill Jesus. Why? Why? Well, I think we're going to see those things in the passage, but this is the big idea in the thesis today. That if you reject Jesus, you reject God. That's it. There's, there's no other revelation of who God is other than the Son. We don't know who the Father is apart from the revelation in the Son. And so today, listen, I was so convicted this week as I studied this and looked at this. And by the way, i got to give credit to who credit's due. Um, Charles Spurgeon had three sentences in a sermon that he preached in 1867. I would highly, you can Google it. It's called Jesus Rejected by His Friends. He had three sentences that just rocked me to my core. And so I would encourage you to go online. You can read that, just a free PDF of that. But, but what are some of the reasons people reject Jesus? And particularly, what are some of the reasons that um, quote, unquote, religious people reject Jesus. We're going to take them one by one as they come in the text. We surveyed 100 people in the text, and here's the couple things that come up, right? The first one is this, familiarity. Familiarity. Look in verse 22. Is not this Joseph's son? Um, which, which, by the way, is a little bit of a slam. Remember all the controversy that we learned at Advent? Um, later on in Jesus' ministry, they will call Jesus, and, and, and if I said the phrase that they said, you would probably get angry with me, but, but a fatherless son. Who's your dad? Because your mom was, um, you know, sort of the original 16 and pregnant Jesus, and there was this controversy that was going on. So what they're saying is, Jesus is in his hometown, and they're going, is this Joseph's son, the carpenter, right? We saw him in Little League, 
right? I mean, like, well, you know, he was always the nice kid, or, you know, I don't know. But they're, they're familiar with who Jesus is. And um, Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors. And he tells a story about when him and his wife went to go see um, Old Faithful there at Yellowstone National Park. And he tells a story that, that, that there's a cafe right there. And so they were in the cafe, and Old Faithful was getting ready to, you know, aren't we so easily entertained? Water from the ground, right? Whoa! And we're just going to, like, build theme parks around it, right? But he said that they had never seen it, and they're there at the cafe, and it's getting ready, the countdown. It's just a wonder that it happens, you know, um, just on this schedule. And so he's watching it as it happens, but then he turns and looks in the diner. And he realizes all the waiters, all the waitresses, the cooks, nobody's looking at Old Faithful. And he said that it dawned on him that the miraculous had become mundane to them because they were around it all the time. Listen, this is a word for us at Westside, and especially in Butler County and in Popper Bluff, where in Popper Bluff you got car dealerships, Mexican restaurants, and churches. And Dollar Generals. Almost left that out. Like, if they're building something, it's probably a Dollar General or something, okay? It's everywhere. It's everywhere around us. And I speak with people and have cups of coffee with people, and they'll say, well, you know, um, my mom and, and my grandma went to church, and I just, you know, I just sort of grew up in church. Oh, oh praise God. Praise God for your granny, boo-boo, gaga. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Very thankful that you grew up in church. But listen, here's what I'm trying to say. Proximity to Jesus is not intimacy with Jesus. Those are not the same thing. That to be around Jesus is not what it is to be in love with Jesus. One of the reasons why people reject him, it's familiarity, the people that are closest to it. But the second thing that I see in the text is this, pride. It's pride. Look at what happens there in verse 23. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's a great teacher, right? So they think the sermon's done, but he says, doubtless you will, say, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And then here's what they say. What we have heard that you've done at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown, hometown boy. I heard that you did that thing at that wedding where like it was awesome and then you turned the water into wine and everyone was like, ooh, ah, and the party got super lit after that and it was a great time. And hey, man, hey, man, hey, this is your hometown. You, you, um, you owe us. You owe us. We raised you around here. And when Jesus says, doubtless, you'll quote this um, proverb, physician, heal yourself. Do you remember what happened in the temptation? One of the things that we said in the difference in identity. When the father speaks over the son, it's an identity that you receive. Jesus had done no miracle. Nothing had happened. This is who you are and you haven't done anything. What does the enemy say about the identity? You have to achieve it. What Jesus is saying that they are saying to him is this. Prove yourself. If you say that you're the son of God and you've got this ministry and you're this young, hot evangelist that's going around preaching the good news of the kingdom, prove it. And listen, anytime anybody ever makes you prove your worth, that is from the pit of hell. 
That is from the world's economy. And any time that you make somebody prove something to you, what you are inevitably doing is you are placing yourself in the primary seat of judgment. And what you're saying is, prove yourself, and then if you prove yourself worthy, then you will have my love and affection. So the people that are closest to Jesus, who are familiar with him, are also the ones who are filled with pride saying, prove yourself. It's not just familiarity and pride, but what about this? Comfort. Comfort. Jesus identifies himself with something here. Verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. By the way, this is true, right? This is just a universal truth. Um, I remember one of the first times that I preached sort of in front of my parents, the people that were, you know, sort of closest around me and stuff like that. And it was a, there was a large crowd around, and I'm, I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm getting ready to go up and preach. And I'll never forget what my mom said to me. She leaned over, and she saw my Bible, and she saw my notes, and she patted my sermon notes, and she said, Aw, are those your little sermon notes? <laughs> and immediately I became a seven-year-old child again, completely insecure, like, what, what little sermon? These are the words of the Lord, you know, like, it's like, what? What? There's just a universal truth when it comes to people that are closest around you and those type of things. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown. But then Jesus says, I'm, I'm a prophet. That's one of the offices of the ministry that I will fulfill. Um, well, let's just do a little Bible study. What happened to the Old Testament prophets? Um, the people killed them. Why? Here's the difference in a priest and a prophet. A priest takes the prayers and the words of the people and brings them to God. That was the office of the priest in the Old Testament. A prophet takes the words of God and brings them to the people. And what the prophets would say is they would stand in the town square and they would say, Thus saith the Lord. No matter how you felt, no matter what you thought the opinion should have been, and they were constantly the people and the office that would come and speak against God's people who had wandered away. And what they don't like about Jesus' sermon is that he comes and doesn't just say, thus saith the Lord. He says, I am the Lord. So now there's no wiggle room on this. And, and listen, this is a word for us because one of the reasons why we want you in your Bible and we want you to read it cover to cover and one of the reasons why we teach through books of the Bible here at the church is because we don't skip difficult uh, passages. So we don't want you just reading the fun parts of the Bible, right? We don't want just coffee cup verses or sweatshirt verses. We want the whole counsel of God. And this is true, man, in 2020, where the only sin in society is to call something a sin. That's about the only sin in society now. And I love what St. Augustine said. They love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate truth when it accuses them. They love truth when it reveals itself, but they hate truth when it reveals them. 
You see, one of the things that we are in danger of as the people of God is to come into these four walls and have this book within our hand and think that our primary job is to speak truth to the people that are outside these four walls. And if you think that's what this is, that is a failure. Because first and foremost, God does something in us before he ever does something through us. So it's not just familiarity and pride and comfort, but how about this one? Um, Bad theology. Bad theology. Jesus quotes in two passages in verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. You can write these down and read these this week. 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 7. I don't have time to go there. I thought about it. And I thought, like, let's just preach for an hour or something like that. But we could go to those Old Testament passages and read those stories. But, but Jesus gives us sort of the footnotes version. He says this in verse 24. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel. You need to circle the word Israel. In the days of Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, one of the greatest of the prophets. When the heavens were shut up for six months and there was a great famine that came over the land. And Elijah, listen, was sent to none of them. None of who? None of Israel. Well, who was Elijah sent to? He was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Do you know how controversial that is, what Jesus is saying? There was a famine in Israel. There was a famine in the land. And God sent a prophet to do a miracle. But God sent a prophet to do a miracle not to God's people, but to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And a woman, by the way, who was a widow, who would have been the lowest outcast of society at that time. But then he links it again in verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel. Do you see what he's comparing and contrasting? He's showing you Israel, and then he's giving you these other locations. In the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. Um, Anybody heard of Syria in the news lately? Anything like that going on? Yeah. We ain't solving that one, buddy, all right? That's been going on for a long time, okay? And Jesus is saying, oh, there were lepers in Israel, but God sent a prophet to cleanse the leper, not in Israel, but in Syria. Why is this controversial? Because when God did those miracles, he did it as a judgment on Israel to show them that they had a bad understanding of who he was because here's what Israel thought. God only loves people like us. God only loves these type of people. And when they make the connection and they realize that Jesus is speaking and saying that the people that are in the synagogue, listen, I was so convicted by this this week. These are people who have Schofield reference Bible, King James, that zip up and have all the highlighters and stuff in there, and they probably have charts and graphs about the end times, and they think that they know the type of people that God loves and likes, and Jesus comes and says, you have no idea. And, and, and listen, I'm so exhausted and weary to my core For when I see on social media or anybody that wants to debate theology, anytime anybody wants to debate theology with me, one of my first questions now is going to be, hey, um, who are you serving and what local church do you attend? 
And, and, and if there's no answer there, or if it's a, uh, 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 I'm not engaging in that conversation. Because listen to me, if you have a theology that makes you think that you love God, but does not engage with loving people, then you have a bad theology. A bad theology. And you know what Jesus says one of the highest marks of his disciples is? One of the highest marks of a disciple. Well, I'll just read it to you in John chapter 13. Jesus says this. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Here it is. If you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if what? If you know them? If you know these things, blessed are you if you memorize them. If you know these things, blessed are you who can trace this, that. And listen, theology is massively important. And our whole series of Epiphany is a theological series of knowing who God is. But here's something I think that we do. And listen, I'm, I'm guilty of this. That we love a Bible study. Oh, man, we just need the new, hot, fresh Bible study, and we'll get in our group, and we'll discuss, and we'll memorize, and we'll do all of that. And in our circle, in our inner circle in our life, the people that we love are only like us. And Jesus would come and say, what is your theology? If your theology does not drive you to love the type of people that I love, which, by the way, is the whole world, then you need to check your theology again. And listen, there's a great judgment that I believe that's going to be coming upon the church from podcasts, resources, Bible translations. I bet each and every average person in this room today probably has two or three Bibles at your house. Probably a dozen Bible studies. And what Jesus is saying, there, there's a part of the love of God that you can only know in your mind, but when it drops from your mind to your heart, that can only happen through application and through trusting. And so these people had built a framework of, of poor theology. And Jesus says, you, you've missed it. But then the last thing that I see is this. For the reasons that we reject Jesus... Familiarity, pride, comfort, bad theology, control, plain and simple, control. Do you see what happens there in verse 28? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up, and they took a church vote, and they voted him out by the majority rule. A little too close for comfort? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. And then here it is, like just this massive verse of sovereignty, verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Like, what was that like? I would love to see that. Was it like a neo-matrix thing? Like, I don't, I don't know, but that's incredible. But what are they trying to do? Don't talk like that. Do not say that. And if you, will, and, and if you won't stop saying that, then what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to push you out of our life. Guys, we do the same thing today. The type of people that we have on social media and who we block and this, that, and the other. And what we try to do is we try to add Jesus to our life. We, we build this life and, and this idea and then we sprinkle Jesus dust on top of it. 
And, and one of the things we say here all the time is, is um, you don't consult with a king. You don't bargain with the ruler of the cosmos. And one of the things that, that we see from this passage is that Jesus is uncomfortable, right? There's a level of the relationship with Christ where there's going to be a stretch and there's going to be something that's uncomfortable. And, and oftentimes people have this twisted. Um, maybe you grew up thinking that the opposite of faith in Jesus was doubt. And it was like, you know, oh, oh. actually, I think when we look at the scriptures, people who doubt, Jesus invites them in closer. What, what Jesus wants you to do is he wants you to bring him your doubts. Jesus has a soft spot for people who are doubting. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. That's the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith in Jesus is not doubt in Jesus. You see, because doubt desires to believe, it just doesn't have enough evidence yet. It just doesn't have enough evidence. Control does not want any other evidence because it's satisfied with the way in which it is. I mean, look at this list. This is, this is a word for us. This is a scary place. So, so then what are the requirements? What's the good news that Jesus preaches? Well, he described it. He described the requirements of what it looks like to receive him. And it's right there in the Isaiah passage. Do you see it? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, here it is, to proclaim good news. Man, that phrase good news is, is, is something that I'm learning and been meditating on and marinating on the idea that um, Jesus speaks good news to us. Good news. Well, Jesus, what's the good news? And what are the requirements for someone who receives you? Well, here they are. Um, he has sent me to proclaim liberty, or I'm sorry, uh, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has sent me to recover the sight of the blind and to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee. What are the requirements to receive Christ? There's the list. Do you get it? Do you get it? Something happens to us. You know what a vaccine is, right? And gosh, please don't send me the emails about the stuff. Good Lord, okay? I'm just, this is just an illustration, all right? It's a little bit of the real thing. So you get used to it. So your body builds up an immunity to it. And when I look at Butler County and I look at Popper Bluff, I see a mass of people who've been vaccinated to the gospel. Just enough. Just enough. What changes that when you see yourself like this? Well, what do you mean poor? You mean really poor? I, don't, I mean, yeah. Um, we see Jesus loving poor people a lot. But how about um, poor in spirit? Because what are you bringing before God? Your resume? Or how about um, being captive, being slaves of sin? Or how about even being blind? That sin is so powerful that we're blinded by its own power. That's why we need a prophet like Jesus to come and to show us that. And then, and then to those who are oppressed to those who are oppressed. God did something um, in my life this week, and it was just a very, very humbling moment for me. 
Because you see, I was so scared studying this this week. I'm a pastor. Sometimes I feel like my life is a little fishbowl. Familiarity, comfort, around the Bible all the time. Oh, look at West Side. Look at everything that's going on. I pulled in this week to Pizza Hut to pick up our dinner. And there it was. Doesn't mean nothing to you. Nothing. That car was the car that I owned when Jesus found me on the side of the road. Had one windshield wiper that worked. I recognized it immediately because the front right bumper was crushed in. And that's a different story about how that happened. <laughs> but but you got to understand when it came to me. It came to me this week, studying this passage, and I'd been, felt like I was entitled with my wife, with my kids. I was in this place, man, of... Is the anger rises up because I'm owed something because nobody gets it. And I pulled in Pizza Hut and he crushed me. And he said, You don't understand. I'll never love you more than when I loved you when I found you right there. Now I went inside and I said, Who owns that car? And this guy was like, Why? I was like, man, I do. I used to own that car. And he was like, oh, yeah, I got it from a junkyard. I was like, I sold it to the junkyard. The timing belt went out and all this stuff. And I got to share the story with him. And I got in the car. And I got to talk to Roman, who was in the back seat. I got to tell Roman about the good news. That's where your daddy was saved. And it was just like God saying, listen, don't forget that poor, blind, captive, oppressed. And the good news that was spoken over you, Jason, is that I love you and I've come to free you of that. I was reminded of the Apostle Paul when he says these, his credentials. If anyone thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh and to boast, I have more than them. You see, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee. And as for zeal, I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. Because what is more... I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. All things. The familiarity, the pride, the comfort, my big theology, all of those things. The Apostle Paul says, I kick it to the curb. Because I understand the worth that is in Christ. And listen, what's the only requirement? What's Jesus trying to tell us? Listen, the only requirement that Jesus demands of you is that you reveal your brokenness. It's the only place he moves in. It's the only place. You want Jesus to work in your marriage? You better admit that pride. You want Jesus to breathe life into your children? You better lay humbly before the Lord. 
And if you say, Jason, that list of familiarity, pride, and comfort, that's me. I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit today that that list would shift and that you would see poor, blind, captive, and oppressed. That's where God moves in our life. So Westside, let us stand to our feet and as we come to the table today, as we come to the table which is not a reward for the righteous, but this table is a gift for the broken. Let us lift up our voices and pray how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. Oh my. Jesus the prophet speaks. And he speaks to us in this room. With the Bible in our hand. Knowledge in our mind. For some of us, we could explain grace. We've never experienced it. God, I just pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that that list of requirements to come to you, Jesus, is so low. That is good news. That is good news. That the only thing, God, that we contribute to our salvation is the brokenness that you make masterpieces out of. I pray that that good news would pierce our hearts today, that it would change our lives forever, that we would repent, that we would confess, and that we would believe. We pray this all in your holy and precious name.